for the average man, the, there was the option of selling your wife. Really? Okay. You could actually, you could sell her. I mean, there's plenty of newspaper reports that, that tell you, I think, was it Smithfield Market in London was a, a almost a trading place for taking your wife. And you could sell that. Um, one of the blogs that I wrote a while ago was, uh, I think that was in Kent, and that was a chap who sold his wife for a pint of beer. Hello, I'm Natalie from Genealogy Stories, and welcome to Twice Removed, the show where we talk about everything history related. I'm really excited today to be joined by uh, Sarah Murden from uh, All Things Georgian. Sarah is an expert in everything Georgian, so I'm really excited to delve into this era. Um, thank you, Sarah, and thanks for joining me. <laughs> thank you very much for inviting me. This should be interesting, I think. <laughs> it would be. So, why the Georgians? Why do you love the Georgian period? Oh, goodness. Um, do you know, I was sort of thinking about this because somebody else asked me why that period, you know, there's so many people do a lot earlier and some people are into the sort of war periods and things. Um, and, do you know, I think the interest came about from being um, a teenager. I lived in uh, Nottinghamshire at the time and um, on the on the school bus going home, um, you sort of go down this fairly sort of steep, well, my recollection now is it was a fairly steep hill. You'd go down the hill and in the dip, um, the mist would gather, you know, during the winter and things like that. And, and some of the kids used to say, oh, do you know what? There's a grave there and there's a ghost that walks. <laughs> so, so you sort of, you know, you kind of like a bit freaked out by it. Um, and anyway, I sort of went, I went home and I told, told my mum and started looking into the, you know, what this was all about. And it turned out that the, not necessarily there was a ghost there, but there was a girl murdered there um, who would have been sort of uh, a little bit older than I was at the time. Um, and it, her gravestone was still, I walked down to to actually have a look. Her gravestone was there and it was 1817. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that story had carried on all that time. Story, you know, it developed into a ghost it, story, but yeah. It interested me. Plus the fact that I lived, um, like, a five-minute walk from Newstead Abbey, where Lord Byron lived. Oh, okay. Yeah. All the scandal of Byron. So it was kind of like, you know, sort of, it was a, a, a place that I lived that had 18th century connections. Um, so that was really how it, it sort of began. So okay. quite a long time, well, a very long time ago. <laughs> and when we, when we say the Georgian period, when is that? When, when's the sort of rough beginning and end? Um, well, we cover, uh, Joe, who um, has been the, the co-host of All Things Georgian, we start at the beginning of George the First Train and we finish uh, 1830 at the end of, oh, roughly 1830, we finish with the end of uh, George the Fourth. But sometimes it will sneak slightly over into William. So I think everybody's got different sort of term, different uh, definitions. Some will take it back to sort of Queen Anne, um, right the way through to, Queen, to King William. Um, it doesn't seem to be, I mean, for me, Georgian equals the Georges, therefore one to four. Um, but I think it's, it's quite loosely attributed, really. Okay, great. And um, so what was life like for the average Georgian? What I know you had these, these really different um, 
you know, I think anyone who's watched something like Bridgerton can see or read any Jane Austen can see you had you had this real difference between classes. Um, could you explain a little bit about that? Why, why did you have this kind of wealthy class and poor class and maybe not quite so much in the middle? Yeah, I think I think that sort of that predates the Georgians. That goes back way in way, way back in time. Um, but certainly for the, the, the Georgian period, there was a very much an, an us and them culture, if you like, um, where there were wealthy landowners. I mean, where I live out here in Lincoln, sort of in the middle of nowhere in Lincolnshire, um, it wasn't until about the 19, early 1900s that the, the village itself uh, or people within the village itself actually were able to buy the land. Until then, it had been owned by one lord for hundreds and hundreds of years. So there was that situation where it was the it was it was about ownership of land and property, um, and with that and wealth and inherited wealth. Um, so it was really difficult to, if, if you like, to sort of socially climb at that time. You were born into to wealth and that wealth was kept within your family and passed around through the, the generations, through the children. You're born into poverty. There weren't the opportunities to actually lift yourself out of that to any great extent. So hence the, the, the need to, to keep money within families and to, uh, to marry well, etc. So um, what, what, if you, if you were poor in Georgian times and you fell on um, hard times, what would happen to you? What what help could you get, if any? Um, what would you do? Uh, I, I suppose the, the easiest answer to that is workhouse. Right. You would go and, and knock on the door of the workhouse um, and that you had really pretty much hit rock bottom if you were needing to, to resort to that. Um, there was parish relief as well. Um, but again, that was limited. So it was it was really, really difficult. And you've got to bear in mind that, I mean, people didn't, the, the life expectancy was relatively short. I mean, you did get people that lived, um, I think recently I've just, I've written a, a blog about a lady who lived to be 92, I think she was, um, you know, in that period. So people did, people could live a long life, but the norm was sort of, if you were lucky, 40, maybe 50 was considered old. Wow. Um, down to the, the lifestyle that you led, the poverty would mean that you couldn't buy the food that would give you the, the sustenance that you needed. Um, you'd be reliant upon whatever you could, um, whatever you could make, so perhaps bread if you could get the flour. Um, but the cost of wheat at certain times was, was incredibly prohibitive. So people couldn't necessarily afford to, to bake bread. Um, and that left you with things like poaching, whatever you could get from the land or from the, the rivers. So it was it was a pretty tough time. Um, families, to have a family of five would be a, an average family. Ten wasn't uncommon. Um, infant mortality was incredibly high because obviously, you know, if the woman wasn't well, uh, well nourished and... Um, you know, when she was pregnant, then the, the, the survival rate for the, the children was obviously going to be uh, pretty low. I'm sure I was listening to a podcast that was saying that the, the Georgian era had one of the worst mortality rates in in history. You know, um, that it was really, yeah, which which is quite shocking, really, when you think 
um, of all the lack of medical skills that, that came before and how we'd begin to develop those skills around that period. Um, yeah, I think the medical skills were being developed sort of towards the end, towards okay. the latter part of the period. Um, but yes, I mean, if, if you look at things like burial registers, it's, it's quite shocking. Um, I mean, I've, I've been recently doing some research uh, into my own village and um, went up to the churchyard and saw uh, a gravestone for uh, a child of six, I think she was. And then as you read, as you read down the gravestone, there's another one aged four and another one aged two. Came back home, looked up the burials, and that that particular uh, what was it three month period? There was something like thirty seven burials, of which twenty eight were children under five. Blimey. Do you do you think something Very like nice. do you think something like scarlet fever went round or I think so some yeah. sort of epidemic yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I funnily I found some burial records recently where very handily the um, the vicar had written in the cause of death for every single oh brilliant and I was like wow <laughs> great find but um but it was yeah. the, the, this adult died of scarlet fever and then when I looked in the papers you could see all these notes about other people dying of the same thing so yeah, it was obviously absolutely. the epidemic going around at the time um. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to imagine that kind of loss, isn't it? And I wonder, I quite often wonder how they carried on, how they picked themselves up. And I I don't doubt, I, I know there has been some kind of school of thought whether they 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 didn't feel the grief in the same way as we do now. And I, I tend to wonder whether they did, but they talked, they had more people to talk to that were in a similar situation. So if you'd yeah. lost a child, chances are your neighbour had also lost a child. And so there was that um, more of a communal understanding, whereas I think, um, you know, and this is literally just my own thoughts, no historical evidence whatsoever. But, um, you know, whether, whether nowadays, it, because it's more unusual to lose a child, it, it's then um, more isolating and more lonely because there's less people to share that emotion with mm. maybe I don't yeah, know I, I, I suspect you're probably right with that um they were close-knit communities for sure um and you know you weren't the first to lose a child you weren't going to be the last to lose a child you'd got females around your mother grandmother aunts you'd got the the support network whereas we look at today and you know maybe your mother's at the other end of the country or you know your aunt lives abroad you don't have them not not in all instances obviously but but in a lot of cases we're in far-flung places and so you haven't got somebody you know we, we can talk on zoom it's not the same as somebody putting their arm around you and letting you cry and saying you know it'll be okay blah blah yeah yeah no you know, I, I don't think agree. we have we don't have that sort of network today really not in the same way that I think they did then as you said I think death was around them a lot more than than it is today so there was an element of it became a, a fact of life yeah 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 part of life um so talking about women actually what what kind of um what kind of activities other than having children <laughs> um, might women have been involved in? What, I, I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about women's rights really um, and why perhaps they were quite so obsessed about having a good marriage. <laughs> um, well, a good, a good marriage equals financial security. Um, you know, we, we talk about today about marrying for love, um, but 
there was that, of course there was, you know, there were love matches and, um, but I think a lot of it though, I think was uh, around build, continuing to build the brand, the empire. Um, so, you know, your father had a big estate, he would look for somebody of an equal standing with a big estate in the next county, for instance, and you could start to, you know, you've merged the two, you'd, you'd marry the two off and you'd merge the two, um, Sort of seats of wealth if you like yeah so the one that it was very much in in the the upper echelons it was about marrying for money and you just had to kind of hope that along with that came love or at least a, a contentment i mean for a lot it didn't um you know if you look at somebody like uh, georgiana duchess of devonshire and um, that was the marriage of two wealthy families and i think she had a hell of a life not in a good way so who, who for, for those who might not know her, who was she and what, what happened to her? What's her story? She married, yeah, she married uh, the, oh, I'll probably end up getting it wrong. She married the fifth Duke of Devonshire. She was a Spencer before. Um, and basically he, I don't think he was that keen on the marriage, but I think it was sort of his or his, or his advisor's um, basically said, you know, marry this girl, she'll produce you the air and the spare that you need, um, two wealthy estates. But he basically treated her pretty much like dirt as a commodity. Uh, I think he was more interested in his houses, his shooting, his dogs. Um, all she served to do was to be to basically she was a breeding mare for him. Um, but he took on a mistress and basically there were three of them living in that marriage and basically she could either put up or shut up. Yeah, I'm guessing you didn't, so have, was, you know, you didn't have divorce or if you did, you had to prove extreme cruelty. Yeah, divorce was, I mean, she, I think, as I understand it, um, she's not somebody I've researched that closely, but I think she would have would have wanted a divorce but with a divorce comes no money right and no money leaves you largely leaves you one course of action and that's to become a courtesan and reliant upon men to provide for you um so yeah divorce divorce was an option it for the affluent but it wasn't a divorce a divorce wasn't possible for your average person um but what men would do but for the average man, the, there was the option of selling your wife. Really? Okay. You could actually, you could sell her. I mean, there's plenty of newspaper reports that, that tell you, I think was it Smithfield Market in London was a, a almost a trading place for taking your wife and you could sell mm. her. Um, one of the blogs that I wrote a while ago was, uh, I think that was in Kent, and that was a chap who sold his wife for a pint of beer. <laughs> oh so you, kind of, you can name your price really for the value that you placed upon her so yeah it, it's it's in it's an interesting uh situation because women they didn't have anything really you know they would be they were brought up um to marry that was what they were that was, they were raised to marry and have children so if they didn't if the marriage didn't work out then where did that leave them that left them yeah, pretty much Hobson's choice, really. Yeah, am I, am I right in thinking women didn't uh, didn't have the right to own property during 
during that period or they, they couldn't they didn't own property unless they were um it's usually when it, the interesting thing is when you look at wills okay excuse me because if you look at uh, a, i've looked at quite a lot of wills recently where um the, the person who, who the, is leaving the legacy will actually leave it to a female, and it, but it will stay on it for her use only or for sole use only, exclusive of her husband. Okay. So they were left land, they were left money. Whether or not they ever got to use it or to spend it might be a different matter entirely, but the will could actually stipulate that it was for her use only. Which I thought was really good. I didn't, I, I hadn't sort of really um, twigged that one particularly that that, that was an option. Yeah, that I, I think that's really interesting too um, because that's that's like it's a, it's a clear sign, isn't it, of trying to protect um, uh, the women in your in your life, you know, to give yeah. them that financial freedom from their husband, and, you know, just in case she need she needed it. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think I think sometimes you could be lulled into this um, sense that actually um, men didn't care about the women in their lives, and I don't I don't necessarily think that's true. It's just that um, it was an incredibly patriarchal society. So, when you when you read wills, you do actually see um, quite often that the husband will say, you know, to my dearly beloved wife. You know, so there obviously there, there was affection there, and and you know it, when we're talking very generally about the the whole period, there were awful things that happened to women at that time, um, and equally there were awful things that happened to men, but there were marriages that were marriages of love, mm. for sure. Yeah, and I suppose you get different types of love, don't you? Because I can imagine that you could slowly fall in love with somebody who, you know, in, in a kind of companionship love, any at least, for somebody who um, kept you financially secure and treated you well, you know, and, 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 and that you got on okay with, you know, it's not necessarily, um, you know, that kind of passionate, you know, love that everybody kind of, you know, it's not Wuthering Heights, you know, it's not kind of, no, exactly. it's not Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy, but it's, it is a, a comfortableness, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure there was that, um, you know, and I think, I think there, there's a, a lack of um, written information that has survived, obviously, for people that were, if you like, working class, then chances are they couldn't read or write. And therefore there was no way of passing that information down to future generation. They didn't leave a, a will or anything. Um, so we, we really don't know what life was like. For the aristocracy, we have a better idea because they leave letters and journals and wills and they leave document they, they leave some documentary evidence that we can at least try to work out what their life was like more for men so we, we kind of know about the estate and who the estate was left to and how many horses they had and things like that but the the fascinating thing is when you read women's wills they where they've left a will it is so much more informative I'm leaving so and so my bra my gold bracelet studded with diamonds and 
uh, I've left this portrait painted by my great, uh, painted for my great great uncle by, and it'd be a famous artist, things like that. We're reading one yesterday, um, and I've still got a lot of work to do on that. And that was somebody who had bequeathed two portraits um, by a famous artist. But I'm thinking, so I'm quick, frantically googling this artist. There's no sign of these paintings. So I don't know whether some whoever inherited them. I don't know whether they didn't like them. <laughs> Over time, they've just been destroyed, or whether they're tucked away in somebody's attic. So that would be really cool if they can be found. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It really would be. Um, so, if you weren't affluent, what uh, you know, as a woman, were, were you able to work at all? Some, yeah. I mean, women worked. Um, they would work in in the home and on on the land anyway that that or doing whatever um i mean in around suddenly around nottinghamshire um they had framework knitters and they were they would work from home they would have the the machine on the, the machine the frame if you like that mm -hmm. uh, that they used to to knit with so they would be expected they were on if you like piecework so the more pieces you churned out the more money you earned so they would do that and keep house and raise the children so that I think would have been you know you'd have been pretty much working 24-7 or as much of that as you, you could um, there were women who who didn't marry and who ran their own businesses there's a, a lady called Eleanor Code who ran a stone manufacturers in London um, and she you know she's pretty well known we, we do know you know, a reasonable amount about her. Um, but I'd love to have met her because I think she was quite feisty, you know, and I'm doing this on my own terms. So, so yeah, there were women like that. So, and um, was uh, was life more rural in the Georgian period? You know, what kind of have you got many big cities at this point, or um, are, are, the, are the majority of people still living fairly uh, rural existences? Still fairly rural at that time. It's not really until you 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 sort of get towards the end of it when you've got the industrialisation that the cities um, actually start to really build up into what we kind of know them as today. When industry, um, you know, where you, you're transporting things via the canal system, um, that, that towns, cities all start to to develop in in the way that we understand them. Okay. And, and, and if I was your average Georgian bloke down the pub, um, what would I have been worrying about in terms of, of, of kind of politics and the country and my my daily bread? You know how we'll sit down and we'll moan about, oh, you know, I'm a bit worried about us Brexit, um, you know, and that kind of thing. I just wondered what, what kind of things were going on in the Georgian period that they might have been talking about. I think your average man in the pub would, would largely be unaware of... Okay the the wider politics of what was actually going on at that time there were newspapers of course um but your average bloke in the pub perhaps wouldn't we be able to read or perhaps wouldn't even wouldn't see them necessarily um but i mean it was a time of it was a time of change and it was the start of the industrial revolution and sort of mechanization of everything so you know you if you were working the land then you might be worried that your job's going to be taken over by machinery and so that has an impact on 
your family, your standard of living? Do you go with the flow or do you kick back and say, no, I'm, I'm staying doing what I do? And then, you know, you can end up losing your job and in the workhouse. It was so fairly easy. Um, I mean, there were wars obviously going on, um, but they were, um, a lot of it didn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily impacted on your average person directly. Okay, that's actually, that's really interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't kind of realised that there was that um, distance from sort of countrywide events or political events and your average person. Um, yeah, because, I mean, you're, your average person, as I say, wouldn't necessarily have access to the newspaper. There were newspapers, there were regional newspapers um, being published. It, again, it's, it's hard to know, isn't it, really? But I, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't think that they would, they probably wouldn't have had time or inclination to to read the newspapers. They might have read, you know, there, there, were, there were these things called broadsheets, which would perhaps give them some information about what, like, what was happening in their local area. Um, but as to what was going on in the wider country, unless it impacted on them, I think they were probably too busy living their lives. You know, we, we, we sort of have the, the world as um, a much smaller entity now. You know, we can chat via Zoom, you know, for all I know, you could be at the other side of the world. It doesn't make any difference. We have the technology to chat. Um, the only thing you would ever have known about Australia would probably have been the fact that we sent people there, we sent prisoners there at that time. So <laughs> it wasn't somewhere you'd go on holiday and it wasn't somewhere you'd live by choice. Yeah, which is really interesting when you think about um, how colonial <laughs> yeah, co colonial we are. So, um, so yeah, I, yeah. So I guess you you would be more like um, Joe in the farm next door has lost his job because they've yeah. got this new machine in. Which yeah, which is yeah. so. Is it the is that the period where you have the luddites yes. smashing the yeah yeah, yeah. okay yes. Yeah, so in the <clears throat> excuse me, the um, frameworks in Nottinghamshire were very much involved in that. So okay, yeah. and so that's where they went in and smashed just. For clarity it's where they went in and smashed yeah. all the machinery up so yeah. that it, so they couldn't take their job which, yes. is, which is really yes. interesting yeah. um yeah i've got a, i've got a um a gamekeeper ancestor oh. uh, um yeah a whole there's a whole um woodrow surname and the, the whole line of them are all gamekeepers master gamekeepers and it, it passes really? down several generations which is nice because it makes them quite easy to trace in the uh, gamekeeper <laughs> yeah. definitely if it's a woodrow i know it's mine they're a gamekeeper i know they're related to me somehow you know oh, sort of thing. so yeah yeah but they actually saw off a crowd of luddites that had arrived at the farm um uh so they they'd arrived on their master's land and they um stood in front of their master and and right. helped stay, stay them off and I, I quite often wonder just how unpopular they were with the with the local population i mean the gamekeepers <laughs> were not <laughs> yeah not popular at the best of times and probably led quite isolated lives yeah. really from the rest of the community and then and then they've gone and you know frightened off a load of luddites um yeah. who were potentially you know losing their jobs so yeah <laughs> they're a good line <laughs> yeah i've got poaching ancestors too so it's, it's a good mix <laughs> oh that's a good mix definitely yeah not on the same line necessarily but you know yeah um 
but yeah um so and also we you mentioned about the the wars that were going on um that's throughout the entire georgian period wasn't it that's the, the wars with yeah. france yes predominantly yeah. um yeah and, french revolution so. um so would would have uh would being a soldier have been considered um you know was there a tradition of of um somebody in your family i'm just thinking of um thinking of Jane Austen actually how you've always got kind of one of the siblings always goes off and joins the navy or the or the soldier and I just wondered you know whether that was actually an accurate you know that's my assumption yeah I think I think I think to a large extent it was um the era if you like on a, a um uh, a sort of more upper class you would have the air and the spare um and if you like protected at all costs and then any others the, the church was a big one for them to go into. That was that was really popular. Um, and then, as you say, the military. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm guessing with the church, you've got the vicarage, haven't you? So it's Absolutely. quite, you know, you, you, you've got a home attached to your job. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's and very some, respectable. Some, some very lucrative um, vicarages to have. And there are others that you think, oh, no, not that one. <laughs> I, I, I have a defrocked reverend in my family tree. <laughs> Oh, nice one. Yeah, and that and that is a Georgian ancestor actually oh, thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. So he um I've I've talked about him before and I've written about him. He um he is the he he got my ancestor who was a who was a servant pregnant at the age of sixteen. He was fifty and um, in eighteen forty one. Oh yeah. Um uh, he went over to France and had a pistol drawn duel. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have anybody I really don't like him he's not a nice guy I you know I don't think I, I personally think he's not particularly a very nice uh character but um yeah they do um but yeah that whole line the the Crespones, I think his his wife um was a friend of Lord Byron's so uh, unfortunately oh, well, I am no then. relation to her though <laughs> I'm through the illegitimate line, which is quite good. But um, yeah, but interestingly, they put this de Crespone surname um, in as a middle name uh, in the illegitimate children. And they passed it on as well, several generations. So it was obviously quite important to them. Um, Yeah, it's a real, it's it's a really interesting case. He he ended up- Where's that come from then, that middle name? So the middle name, the de Crespone, is the surname of the father of- the illegitimate oh, child oh, right. so they she actually so his name was um uh august uh well william augustus de crespinay and she right. actually gives her son the name augustus william or william augustus de crespinay and then he passes that to crespinay all spelled in 101 oh. different ways um yeah. down the generations and in, i mean my family they were they were laborers they were poor um this particular illegitimate son was was brought up by his grandparents I haven't quite figured out what happened to his mother Jane um but yeah and uh old sorry the father's Heaton Heaton de Crespinay old Heaton de Crespinay his father was an Augustus uh he ends up going to um going to Australia uh emigrating to Australia and and dies a penniless gold miner in uh <laughs> in, in disgrace really so yeah he's quite a character to trace but that was that that kind of you would have been born in the in that Georgian period yeah. and, and it's obviously sort of one of the spares 
and his, uh, you know, his father's yeah. a baron and his brother obviously becomes, older brother becomes a baron um, and he goes into the clergy rather, rather unsuccessfully. <laughs> so yeah, it was so track. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, I like it. Yeah, it was a good one to research. It was interesting. Um, so yes, yeah, so they would have got so total sidetrack for what we were talking about there. Sorry. So um, so yes, yeah, so one 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 going into the clergy and one becoming sort of a soldier or a navy, not not particularly yeah. unusual. Um, so have you got have you got any favourite Georgians that you've discovered? Any people that you you found yourself um, always telling other people about or, or coming back to time and time again to look at? Yeah, I, th I think, yes, I think that would have to be the one of the books that we've written, which is the um, account of uh, as a Georgian heroine, and that's Rachel Charlotte Williams Biggs. Okay. And she, it, it's a difficult, to be fair, the, the book's a difficult read at the beginning, because she was abducted and assaulted. So um, it's a kind of like a, a trigger warning at the beginning, really. Or, or we probably should have actually put one in because uh, it doesn't make for easy reading. But she recounted her her story of her life um, in she wrote it down in 1821, but it relates to her life in 1780 when all of this happened. And it was a, a she wrote it as what she called a testament, i.e., an account of her her abduction and everything. And she, not only is she abducted once, but she's abducted by the same man who was completely obsessed with her a second time. She then manages to escape and she reinvents herself. Uh, it's like it's complete sort of transformation. Mm -hmm. And she is responsible for organizing George III's Golden Jubilee. She goes off to France and she spies for the British, reporting back on what life was like in France at that time. And um, she just had an amazing life. But whilst we were writing it, there's this constant uh, in the back of our minds, is this true? Did this really happen? You know, there were so many, so many different things that, that happened that, just made it seem like two completely different people. Um, uh, but I'd love to have been able to go back in time and meet her. I've got a million and one questions that we didn't manage to answer about her life. Um, we pieced so much of it together from, well, virtually just from this testament that she wrote, um, managed to work everything else out from that. So it was a real, it was a late, became a labor of love you know almost eating sleeping breathing talking to everybody else about her um phoning archives to ask for uh documents and oh must tell you the story and then tell you and explaining why we were trying to you know what we were doing what we were trying to find out and and so yeah so yes that would be her for sure I actually, I actually think that's a really important message that you just said there, that you phoned the archives and then you told them what you were, you know, ended up telling them the story. Because I, I think um, this, yeah. from a genealogy perspective, visiting the archives for the first time can be really, really nerve wracking. Um, and I yeah. think that's what, what you're saying there about you 
you can actually have a phone call with somebody yeah. in a conversation and say this is what I'm looking at and I've read this guide and I think I need to go here can you help steer me yeah. is um, perfectly acceptable um, yeah. so yeah, yeah I think that's actually a really important she, point she lived in in Bristol um, and that was that's kind of like the other side of the country for me so um you know it, it, it was kind of like too, not not too far to travel but it was sort of there's no point in traveling that far if they don't actually have anything that might even be vaguely useful so it was a case of making a phone call and then saying this is who i'm researching this is and this and the, the person i spoke to um so I said oh, i'm sure we've got stuff drop me an email and let me know what it is you're actually or what you think you're looking for so I sort of uh, ended up sort of padding out a, an email um, and it was like, oh, actually, yeah, we've, we've got this and we've got that. And and then and it, as you build, you can build up a sort of rapport. And um, part of the story came across the fact that she said, oh, she'd had a portrait painted by one of the most well-known artists in Bristol. And it, I, I didn't know any Bristol artists. So it was back onto the archives. Were there any artists? And it turned out, yes, it was a female artist, Relinda Sharples, who um, had more than likely painted her. And we've never found a, a, um, a portrait of Rachel Charlotte anywhere. But we know she had one done. We know she was living in Bristol. Relinda Sharples has quite a few um, miniatures and portraits of women that are unknown woman. I would love to know if one of them was her. And I think he, I think one of them may well have been. Yeah, yeah, it's about building up that building up a relationship with the archives because yeah. they are so super helpful. They really are. Um, when you mentioned the pictures there, it's almost like you want to trace all of her descendants and then you know <laughs> kind of photo fit, see what see who has who has yeah, the most resemblance in your little miniatures to all these different descendants. Yeah, that's you know? the problem. She had no descendants. Oh no. She never married. She used the name Mrs. as a sort of cloak of respectability. Mm. It allowed her to travel to France and not be questioned. She spoke fluent French, so nobody picked up on the fact, you know, she's just this middle-aged, um, French-speaking, British married woman. So nobody questioned what she was doing while she, all the time she's snooping. She even went into uh, Napoleon's um, chateau and um, nicked some paper from there. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> and, wrote, and wrote letters to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And she kind of puts... Oh, P.S. I if it she puts P.S. I pinched this from Napoleon's writing desk. <laughs> you know what she, what she was trying to get across. I think really was if you want me to be a spy, this tells you how good I am. Really? I can actually get in there and I can do this, and nobody questions. Would you question a middle-aged woman wandering around, looking at all the paintings, looking at all the buildings, talking to people in their own language? Would you even suspect that she was anything other than just a very cute middle-aged woman? Yeah, yeah, excellent. <laughs> so I, I think she was pretty. I, I, I have a real soft spot for her. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not surprised. Um, <laughs> talking about women and um which i know has kind of dominated our interview hasn't it but you know <laughs> um uh i know that you've also um which is how i found you you'd, you'd written about um dido bell 
Um, yes. And I just thought it would probably be um, negligent, really, not to mention the, the, the slave trade during the Georgian period. Um, um, and I just wondered whether you could tell us a bit about Dido Bell and why she's important. Um, well, Dido Bell, yeah, she was the, she, she, she held the sort of uh, the, the label of being the, the first British, uh, first black British aristocrat. Um, her mother was uh, a slave and she was captured, I think she, we think she was captured by Sir John Lindsay, who was a, a, a naval gentleman. Um, and it was his great uncle was the uh, uncle was Lord Mansfield, who was opposed to slave trade. There were a couple of very famous cases that Lord Mansfield was involved in. And um, he, he basically said that, that no, nobody living on British soil had the right to be or, or could be a slave. Dido was raised at Lord, by Lord Mansfield and his wife at Kenwood House in, in London, outside London. Um, and she, we believe from everything we've read that she was raised as an aristocrat. Um, but there seem to be two schools of thought. There are schools of thought that say she was actually um, employed in the dairy and she was Social, not a social equal to her cousin who also lived there, but I've not found any evidence to support that sort of theory. And equally, the amount of money that the payments that were made to her cousin uh, upon her marriage was more than Dido got. Um, and birthday presents, things like that, her cousin got more than Dido got. So there, there is an inequality there. But I, I just don't know, really. Quite, we, we're still piecing bits together of Dido's life. She did have um, two siblings, and um, or half siblings, I should say. So, so John had five children altogether, with all with different mothers. Okay. Um, four of them. Uh, Dido, we're not. Dido, we believe, was born in England. Um, from couple of documents that, that we've come across. Uh, but the other four, one died in infancy, one either died in infancy or remained in Jamaica. We really don't know, we can't trace a burial or anything for this child. And the other two um, were taken to Scotland and were raised there. Um, the, the girl, Elizabeth, she married uh, a, a chap who was a good friend of the poet Robert Burns. Okay. Uh, she's met, she gets mentioned in, in Burns's letters. And um, the the boy, he went out to India, worked for the East India Company out there. And um, he died out there. So we, but we know he had a daughter, but we don't know what became of her. But she was quite wealthy when, uh, when he died, though. Okay. So yeah, so Dido married. I mean, there, there's been a film. There's a book uh, by Paula Byrne about Dido, uh, which is fabulous. If you, if you don't know anything about her, haven't, haven't read about her, that's worth reading. Um, equally, there are probably about ten or twelve articles now on all things Georgian about her. Um, I, at some point, I will actually just sort of. I will probably take those all down and put combine them all into to one document. But that's. <laughs> <laughs> for the future 
Um, but Dido married, and she married a Frenchman, um, Jean de Vignier, who was a steward. And she lived till 1804. And she had three children. And until about three weeks ago, um, as far as we've, as far as everything seems to show, only two of them survived. Um, but one of them, with, everywhere that we've looked, says died in infancy. But we know that he outlived his mother now. So okay. that's kind of where I'm at with trying to find him. Do you, do you think it's fair to say that Dido has be, was um, sort of exoticised at the time? I think if you go by the painting of her, um, yeah. then yeah, yes, I think she was. Um, it, it, again, it's really hard to know. I mean, I think Dido, I think she would have largely lived in a very protected, a very protected bubble. And I'm not quite sure what the painting's trying to actually reflect, whether it is sort of the, the exoticism of her colour. Um, is, she, is it painting her with Lady Elizabeth as a as sharp contrast, the black versus white? And yet they're they're very in the portrait, they're very close. And it seems obvious that the, the two girls grew up together and from everything we've gathered were very close. So how much Dido's skin colour actually had upon her and upon the family during her life, I don't know. I, yeah. I, Lord Mansfield thought the world of her. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how much he actually saw her colour. I think he just loved her as a person. It's really interesting. I, I guess one of the things that's interesting about it is that her life was not typical of somebody who'd I'm I, you know I'm surmising it's not typical of somebody who'd been um born to a, a mother in slavery and an aristocratic white man I'm, I'm you know presuming yeah. no it, it wasn't it wasn't typical no for sure um and I think you know from that point of view I think I think she had a a, a good life which I think is is fantastic. Um, but again, we can't go back. We can't actually go back there and see what the life was like. We know bits and pieces about it. Um, you know, in little snippets of information, for instance, you know, she had a, a dentist come out to her. She'd obviously got toothache. Um, she had, uh, she bathed in ass's milk from time to time, which must, must have meant she had some, presumably was a skin condition. That warranted that. Lord Mansfield paid for things like that. So you wouldn't do that unless she was part of the family. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think with so much of history, you have to read between the lines, don't you? Mm. You don't get the full answer. You have to um make your own um informed assumptions, I guess. I think um, that I think that's... Guesses. And I think you have to be upfront about the fact that that's what you're doing as well. Yes, I mean, I think I absolutely. you know, I have to do that with my own ancestors at time. I can't find their voice. They were they were working class they didn't leave any record okay. but I can read about um what other people in the same positions yeah. were doing and and what was going on in their area and you know yeah. and you can sign it kind of piece together what yeah. most likely <laughs> you know and I think um, that I think that's that's it I mean it's it's fabulous when you can actually find tangible proof you know whether that's a painting or a piece of jewelry or uh, a will or you know just some, something that you can actually 
almost something that you can touch that you can say well, this belonged to them or they wrote this yeah but for the vast majority of people that that sort of thing just we, we don't have the luxury of that and we don't know how they actually felt emotions I think are um a lot harder to track down really yeah definitely and I think you, you, I'm always wary that uh, I'm conscious that I know I do do it that I probably put my modern emotions onto the past because they're the only emotions I know I don't know how else to feel yeah, any I other think, way so I'm conscious I, that I'm doing that and I try to kind of either pull back from doing that or do that with a conscious this is what I'm doing you know because I don't yeah. have any other answers um yeah. and that that's really difficult I think it is it is difficult um I mean somebody asked me a while ago well, what do you think about Sir John Lindsay and and it's sort of like everything I've read about him I kind of liked him and, and then, you know, and you can kind of hear people around the room, but he fathered five illegitimate children, you know, and, and, and he left his daughter, um, you know, at, uh, at Kenwood House. And it's like, yeah, but he must have cared about her. He must have cared. He could have left her with a mother, uh, wherever that may have been, you know, taking her back to wherever she came from. But no, he didn't. He looked up, he provide he, he made sure that Tobido Dido was provided for, that she was safe, that she was well educated. Mm-hmm. Um, Dido's mother, he funded property for her um, in Pensacola, out in uh, Florida. Okay. And she went off out, out there to live. Why Dido didn't go, we don't know. But it is so it's so easy to put 21st century values onto what happened at that time and that we have to be a little bit careful about actually doing that yeah no I agree because um you've got to take for example his actions in light of the fact that we um lived in a very patriarchal society that we lived in a society where um you know thousands and millions of black people were slaves so it, it yes. you've got to put it into the context of the time the, yeah. that it was um written sure. uh, not written happened, happened yeah. <laughs> um so um just to to wrap up actually I just wondered talking about um you know uh exploring history in that way um what tips would you give somebody who had perhaps researched their family history and found you know managed to get back to their kind of Georgian ancestors mm-hmm. um and not so much in terms of finding them actually in the records but they wanted to get to know what their lives were were most likely like um what what tips would you give somebody who was looking to do that give any advice <laughs> um right I mean well uh, a plug for all things Georgian of course absolutely um and there's, there's about 600 articles on there so I think there's there's, there's probably um something there that will hopefully interest people um newspapers are fabulous absolutely you're smiling at that and I'm sure you must do it they're my I favorite spend, I, I I start reading uh, a newspaper looking for something and just off to the side there'll be something else and it's like oh that looks interesting and I completely forget what I was actually looking at and I get fascinated by something completely different that I'd no intention of actually exploring at the time so newspapers are a great source of information because whilst it might not tell you about your ancestor uh, I mean if it say say that say they were a framework knitter um and you'd like oh I don't know what framework knitter does or anything or what happened 
try searching in the newspapers and you'll find information about them. Um, archives obviously are, <laughs> are a fantastic resource. Um, other than that, books, Google Books, you can do, you can use those for free. Um, there's the, oh goodness, of course, Haiti, Haiti Trust. Yeah, 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 I know what you mean. I know I, I know I dip in and out of that. I'll put a link. I, I know yeah. the one you mean. Yeah, yeah. I can't think how it's spelled. Yeah, there's um, the Internet Archive as well. Yeah. Um, that that's really, that's always useful. So there's, there's so many more resources coming online now that uh, people can actually go further back. Um, wills are always uh, they're one of my favorites i love reading <laughs> i'm really sad i love reading wills <laughs> oh, i think that no I, I agree i think wills are really fascinating i'm always um sad that i have got a couple in my entire family history really it, it, except for probably that one aristocratic line which actually isn't a line that i've looked at very much because i don't feel very connected to it so um, funnily, yeah. funnily enough it's um it yeah. probably interests me the least out of all the lines that I've got. I just don't feel like they're mine somehow, which is, is, is odd, isn't it? It's not it's not not logical. I've got just as much DNA from them as I would have from any other line. But but you do find parts of your family that you are connected to and parts that you aren't or part and parts that you wish you weren't. So it's it's a difficult one. It is difficult. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for talking to me. I feel like I've learned um, an awful lot in a really short space of time. And I, <laughs> as, as a big newspaper advocate, I'm always talking about newspapers and I feel like I must bore everyone stupid. So I'm getting tangled up as I'm saying goodbye. I must bore everybody stupid um, by repeatedly well, saying, please look in the newspapers, please look in the newspapers. Um, fabulous it, the, the fact that they're digitalized and you can search by keyword yeah it's just absolutely incredible and you, you can search yeah. for anything it doesn't have to be a uh, no i completely agree you know yeah um so <laughs> i could feel myself on that edge of that rent there so i just i just pulled myself back a little bit no thank you ever so much um for talking to me i would encourage anyone to go look at your website i think it's a brilliant resource thank so um thank you so much for your time sarah you're very welcome Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this video, don't forget to hit subscribe or visit me at www.genealogystories.co.uk.